For Aliki, this was the culmination of his life's work. He and his kinsmen had worked day after day, year after year, to complete this. Now it was complete. He could feel the blood racing in his chest and the butterflies in his stomach as his pride swelled when he looked at the moai he had constructed for his clan. Like all of the moai on Rapa Nui, this moai was cut out of the stone from Rano Raruku, near Mount Puakatiki, on the southwestern part of the island. Aliki's ancestral lands were at Tahai, on the northwestern part of the island. It would be a long, hard haul to take their moai all the way across the island and stand it on the foundation they had constructed for it at Tahai. It would be the hardest part of the entire project. But the pathway was ready for their moai's journey, and before the next new moon, their moai would be looking down, watching over their village. Their clan's first moai, a stone statue depicting their family's deity, was a little bigger than a man. It had stood on the hill overlooking their village all his life. Aliki was a little boy when the second moai was erected by Manu, his uncle and chief elder of their village. This one was a little bigger than the first. But since then, the Laakai tribe had put up a moai that was much bigger than theirs. The Laakai were the neighboring village to the northwest. As everyone on Rapa Nui Island knew, a tribe's guiding spirit, or deity, dwelt in their village's moai. Every day, every man and woman from Aliki's clan woke up, went outside, bowed down, and gave their thanks to Amakua, who looked over them from above their village. It was humiliating that the Laaki's moai was so much bigger than theirs. The knowledge that their own moai was so much weaker than the Laaki's was hard enough to take, but what made it intolerable was that the Laaki never let them forget it. They mocked Aliki's moai every chance they got and never missed an opportunity to remind Aliki and his tribe that they were children of a lesser god. This was not only humiliating, it was completely unacceptable. Aliki's family deity was one of the oldest and most successful on Rapa Nui. Aliki could no longer accept this kind of humiliation, and so, as chief of his tribe, he had toiled with his kinsmen day after day for almost ten years to show everyone on Rapa Nui how impressive Aliki's clan really was. Aliki nearly burst with pride as he thought about installing his moai over their village. The moai needed to be rolled on tree trunks as there was no other way to move it across the island. Because all of the tribes had been constructing new moai in recent years and had cut down all of the trees on their tribal lands in order to transport their moai, there were now only eight trees left on the island. After all of the trees on all of the tribal lands were cut down, some of the tribes had cut down the few trees surrounding Mount Teravaka on lands that belonged to no tribe. This had been controversial on the island, but nobody had ever stopped a tribe from doing it. The eight remaining trees were in these lands. It had been a long, grueling day, but Aliki had led his tribesmen up the slopes of Teravaka, cut down these trees, and rolled and hauled them down the mountain to the quarry where their magnificent moai lay waiting for the journey to his tribal home. Just as they made it to the quarry, Tanei, the chief of the Laaka'i, walked into the quarry with several of his tribe members dressed in warrior paint. This was unbelievably provocative. Tanei walked right up to Aliki and started yelling at him. This astounding breach of social etiquette could not be tolerated. Who was this Tanei to come and insult him so in front of his kinsmen? Who was he to tell Aliki he was not free to do as he saw fit, with trees that were on free lands that no tribe controlled? 
It wasn't long until their shouting turned to blows, and as soon as that happened, each tribe's warriors all joined in and began attacking each other with rocks, sticks, and anything they could get their hands on. The next day, Aliki returned to their precious Moai with those of his tribesmen who were still able to make the trek across the island. What they saw was devastating. The nose of the Moai was chiseled off. It would have taken a group of men all night to do that. The tribal war that followed drew in every tribe on Rapa Nui. When it was over, Aliki had lost half of his warriors. Most tribes had suffered similar losses. In the end, a council of chiefs had been convened. They had all agreed. Their people were hungry. The fighting had to end. The birds and big game they used to hunt when the island had trees were now gone. They all had to go hunting for rats. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 18, Over the Edge. Our fictional opening this week took place on the island of Rapa Nui, perhaps around 1650 AD or so. On Easter Day in 1722, the Dutch explorer, Jacob Rogovine, came upon the island giving it the name we've come to know it by. Scientists studying the island found that it was forested until perhaps 100 years before Rogovine's visit. What Rogovine found in 1722 was an island with many giant stone statues, virtually no natural resources, and an almost naked, pathetically poor population. When there were trees on the island, the islanders built canoes and hunted dolphins, which is thought to have been their principal food. After the island was deforested, however, they were reduced to scavenging what they could find on the island catching whatever fish came close to shore, and trying to catch the numerous island rats that had become a primary food source. Studies of the island show that historically there had been extensive irrigation systems and farming, but all of that was long gone, along with the rest of the island's resources by the time of Rogovine's visit. Before the island's resources had been squandered, there were at least six species of birds, including parrots, owls, rails, and herons along with numerous other species of terrestrial animals that went extinct after the island was deforested. Scientists studying the island are convinced that the deforestation of the island was a result of the islanders' overuse of their resources. It has long been thought that the trees were cut down to serve as rollers to roll the moai from where they were quarried to where they would be placed, but the trees may have been used for building canoes, houses, or a combination of things. People have asked the question for many years now, what was the man who cut down the last tree on Easter Island thinking? Our opening this week is my attempt at an answer. It's my best guess as to what may have been going through his mind. Archaeological evidence on the island includes several moai at the Rano Raruku quarry that were in various stages of being sculpted but were never completed. There are also moai that were defaced or vandalized. It's thought that the Moai was suddenly abandoned. What we've been able to see is that humans facing imminent environmental collapse can completely ignore the danger of loss of environmental resources. Did the Easter Islanders do this? 
Hard evidence is lacking, but it appears likely that something like this happened. As you know, we've been following the arrow of history that will take us to the Industrial Revolution and will ultimately bring us to where we are today, facing a massive global environmental collapse with a population that, so far, has refused to take the drastic steps necessary to prevent the impending collapse. So far, we've watched humans progress from small tribes with large amounts of reactive aggression, practicing human sacrifice, to gladiatorial games, to, by the end of the Middle Ages, a legal system that provides some kind of due process for English citizens. Okay, we're still torturing people, but that'll mostly be banned in 1640. We've been watching the long, slow march towards civilization, that is, the march of history. It's nice when history's march is that neat and tidy. Oh yeah, we've still got World War I, World War II, and Southern slavery to come. Hmm, perhaps our trip won't be that neat and tidy after all. At any rate, our purpose is to understand the current climate malaise, so we'll continue to take a detour now and then to look at a specific aspect of human nature. Today we're going to be looking at civilizations like Easter Island that didn't address serious signs of environmental wasting and suffered severe environmental collapse, a phenomenon that should have particular interest to every human under 60 today. This week's episode owes an immense debt of gratitude to Jared Diamond for writing his classic book, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. It's one of those books that everyone should read. In his famous voyage, Christopher Columbus landed on the second largest island in the West Indies in 1492 and named it Little Spain, or Hispaniola. As the location of the first European colony in the New World, Hispaniola, today known as Haiti and the Dominican Republic, has had a very long and troubled history of colonization, mistreatment, repression, decimation of its native inhabitants, slavery, war, and poverty. Throughout much of this time, the island was divided into colonies of France and Spain, though the balance of power shifted between the two multiple times between the 15th and 18th centuries. In the last decade of the 18th century, there was a massive slave revolt in the French half of the island. This turned into a revolution in which the French were kicked out of Haiti, in the only instance I know of in which the victors ended up paying reparations to the country they had defeated in war the ex-slaves in Haiti paid crushing reparations to France to reimburse the French landlords for the loss of their property. This had the effect of keeping Haiti impoverished for many decades. Could better government and trade policies have lifted them out of the poverty that was the result of France's brutal reparations? I don't know, but it didn't happen in Haiti. Several factors worked against Haiti. For one, Haiti had no long history that would help them pull themselves up by their bootstraps. When Japan began to modernize during the second half of the 19th century, they had an emperor whose line was over 2,000 years old, and a Confucian ethic that emphasized education and hard work. Haiti had to attempt to bring a brand new country out of poverty with a population that had been seized from numerous different African regions and brought together with no mutual culture, language, or traditions. Worse yet, they were treated internationally almost as pariahs because they were the only slaves who had ousted a colonial power and created their own government. And worst of all, they were cursed with a succession of greedy dictators who cared greatly for increasing their personal wealth, but cared nothing for the welfare of their people. 
these dictators famously ended with the disastrous reigns of Papa Doc Duvalier and his son Baby Doc, who held power from 1957 until 1986. Looking for a moment at the Vikings, one historian said they came to Greenland, it got cold, and then they died. But somehow, Diamond rejoins, the Greenland Inuit came, stayed, and survived, right up until this day. The point? Cold or not, the Greenland Norse didn't have to die. Diamond elucidates how the Norse mistreated their environment, without even realizing it in some cases, and refused to adapt to its variations. The Vikings, Diamond notes in his customary casual style, had a bad attitude and thought the Inuit were gross weirdos. As a result, they didn't adapt to the Greenland environment as the Inuit did, and eventually starved to death. Although it's his chapter on Greenland that has thus far won most acclaim, Diamond's treatment of contemporary Hispaniola might be more relevant to the complexities of today's world. Two countries share the island, the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Their resources, climate, religion, and history as colonies are markedly similar, and yet their current situations are very divergent. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Only 1% of the land is covered with forest, compared to 28% in the Dominican Republic. While the Dominican Republic is by no means rich, its economy continues to grow, its environment is protected, and it reaps the benefits of munificent relations with the international community. In Haiti, there are too many people, too few resources, too few jobs, and at the moment, scarcely a government. Diamond argues that the proximate cause of collapse in a society like Haiti, a coup d'etat or a flood resulting from a hurricane, for instance, is only a manifestation of the ultimate cause, the mismanagement of its environmental resources. If it weren't for foreign aid, Haiti could never support its population. And while the Dominican Republic is a great success by comparison, it's important not to underestimate the tension it faces between the forces of development and the fight for environmental preservation. The difference is that the Dominican Republic's leaders and citizen activists had the foresight to protect the environment before it was beyond repair. This has given the Dominican Republic a much healthier and robust ecosystem which supports far more productive farms and forested habitats. Although there's been significant deforestation in the Dominican Republic, it still has significant amounts of healthy forested habitat and healthy farmland with good soil. Much of the reason for this is a government that has pursued policies of restoring the environment. Haiti, on the other hand, is almost completely deforested and has lost most of its good soil from erosion due to unprotected runoff. The result is one of the poorest nations in the world. An environmental collapse like this dooms its people to many decades of poverty. The result of the Dominican Republic's pro-environmental policies is that Dominicans enjoy a much better quality of life than Haitians. Sadly, human history is replete with examples of societies that have overstressed their ecosystems and have suffered collapse when they have been unable to feed themselves. Another much-studied example is the Anasazi. This was a civilization that thrived for several centuries between 600 AD and 1100 in what is now the southwestern United States. This is a very hot and dry country, but the Anasazi were masters at adapting their ecosystem for agriculture. As we've discussed, agriculture spontaneously occurred several places throughout the world. The Anasazi were one of the cultures that adopted it in the Americas, 
and were able to transform their very harsh environment to a flourishing agricultural ecosystem capable of supporting a thriving society. To do this, they constructed the most extensive irrigation system in the Americas outside Peru. For several centuries then, the Anasazi lived and thrived in a society in Pueblo-style homes. Yet archaeologists and scientists have found several clear signs of environmental degradation. It's thought that this was brought about by overpopulation of the area. Evidence shows that the Chaco Canyon area, where they lived, was forested when the Anasazi first arrived. Over the centuries, however, overuse of their environment led to deforestation. As was the case in Haiti, deforestation leads to loss of soils and a degradation of the area's suitability for growing crops. It also deprives the area of the habitat for game that the Anasazi needed to supplement their diets. Tree rings reveal that Chaco Canyon suffered drought in 1130. The deforestation and environmental degradation that had already occurred seemed to result in a now fragile ecosystem that was unable to survive this final assault. Evidence shows that the society slowly collapsed after that. Archaeologists have found evidence that during this period of collapse, the Anasazi experienced wars and even the burning of entire villages. There's also evidence of starvation and even cannibalism. There are so many more examples of environmental failures leading to societal collapses and examples of societies ignoring the signs of the imminent collapse of their ecosystem. But we also need to look more closely at how civilizations respond when they are faced with climate change. Beginning around 250 AD, a change in climate patterns led to a failure in the movement of the Atlantic air mass from Europe to Asia. This, in turn, led to a great drought in Asia, which caused the immigration from Central Asia of the nomadic people who lived there. These nomads were masters of the horse and had recently perfected the compound bow. This was a weapon that had not made its way beyond the Asian steppes at the time. It was hard to use, but more deadly than bows used elsewhere. The mastery of these bows combined with the equestrian prowess made these people, known as the Huns in the West, formidable military foes. In Asia, the Huns had been an illiterate nomadic culture. They left no great historical record behind in Asia, so not much is known about their time there. Shortly after the middle of the 3rd century AD, however, the Huns began moving westward towards Europe due to the climate change. For 70 years, they continued moving further west, displacing the people who had lived there. Much has been made of the ongoing attacks against Rome by the northern barbarian tribes in the later Roman Empire. Although historians know this, it may be less popularly known that, at least initially, these migrations into Roman territory were not military invasions. It was tribes such as the Goths being displaced by the Huns and simply coming into Roman territory looking for lands to set up farms to feed their families. Perhaps if the Romans had been more accommodating and allowed these tribes to settle peacefully in their territory, the history of the later Roman Empire may have ended very differently. That's not our point today, however. The history of the later Roman Empire is long and complex. There are many theories as to why Rome fell. My personal theory remains that Rome did not have an adequate process to choose their emperors, resulting in too many incompetent emperors in the late empire. I'm sure the empire could have lasted longer under more competent leadership. Still, there are many that blame the barbarian invasions from the north for the fall of the Western Empire. 
These invasions certainly put a huge stress on the Western Empire, without which the Western Empire certainly would not have fallen when it did. And these invasions quite clearly would not have occurred when they did, had the Huns not displaced the Germanic tribes at the end of the 3rd and the beginning of the 4th century BC. Under one very plausible theory, then, climate change was the reason for the fall of Rome. Let's end our series of environmental collapse vignettes on a positive note. In 870 AD, when many of their countrymen were busy conquering the north of England and Normandy and raiding and trading as far south as Constantinople, some Vikings chose a more pastoral path and settled in Iceland, where there were no inhabitants to plunder or conquer. This seems to have been a very popular route for many Vikings as there was very active emigration from Scandinavia to Iceland until 930, when all of the good Icelandic farmland was taken up. Perhaps Iceland attracted so many Vikings because it looked pretty much like their native Scandinavia when they arrived. Rich forests, verdant fields, it looked for all the world like it would be a great place to grow crops and raise their livestock. The reality of Iceland proved more challenging after they had moved there and established their farms, however. Reykjavik, Iceland, is over 650 miles north of Copenhagen, Denmark. The climate is much more brutal in Iceland than it was in Scandinavia. The rich-looking pastures the Vikings saw when they arrived was growing on top of a very thin layer of soil. It made for poor farms, and the climate was too cold for their cattle, who did poorly. Although they could raise sheep and goats there, but overgrazing could easily lead to erosion of the already thin and precious soil. Worse news was in store for them when they began to chop the forest down for their houses, fences, and for firewood. They had, of course, done this in Scandinavia for many centuries. The trees there grew back in about 60 years or so. What the Vikings didn't know when they arrived in Iceland, however, was that those rich forests had taken about a thousand years to grow due to the harsh climate of Iceland. Years of treating the land just as they had their farms and communities in Scandinavia degraded much of the soil and left significant portions of Iceland deforested. So far, we're hearing the same old story we've heard from Eastern Island and so many other societies who've ignored the signs of their environmental deterioration. Happily, Iceland proved a new twist to this old story. The leaders of the different Icelandic communities got together and set up rules for cutting down trees, as well as other rules to help preserve ecosystems. They stopped trying to raise cows and raise sheep and goats that weren't so difficult on the environment. They turned to the seas and harvested fish, seals, and waterfowl for a much more significant portion of their diet. Generations of Icelanders were poorer than they would have been if these methods had been adopted earlier, but their story has a happy ending. Their environment though degraded, didn't collapse. And neither did their society. It continued to grow over the centuries and eventually to thrive, to the point that now, by at least one measure, it's the 15th richest nation in the world. So what's our takeaway from all this? Human history is replete with examples of societies depleting their environments, suffering a collapse of their ecosystem. I don't know for sure what the Easter Islander was thinking when he cut down the last tree on the island. But clearly, 
He was unconcerned with the fact that this might do not only all of his progeny, but all future Easter Islanders for generations, if not for centuries. I'm guessing that he, and I'm assuming that it was a he, wasn't thinking about the environmental repercussions of his act much, if at all. We can't argue that this is the case with modern climate denialists. They've all thought significantly about climate change. They've had no choice. With all the discussion and news coverage today, essentially nobody in the U.S. can claim that they're unaware of the climate crisis. Rather, the argument seems to be that they've thought about it and are deciding to believe that virtually every climate scientist alive today is wrong. They want to believe that we can go on as we have been. As in the children's story, they refuse to believe that the emperor is wearing no clothes. These deniers vote for leaders like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, who not only refuse to move their countries towards reducing greenhouse gases, but actively pursue policies that increase greenhouse gas emissions. Anti-environment candidates like this are receiving massive numbers of votes. Donald Trump, for example, in the 2020 election, won more votes than any presidential candidate in the history of the U.S., with, of course, the exception of his opponent, Joe Biden. This is a fight, however, we don't have the option of losing. In every case of environmental collapse discussed in this episode, in fact, in every case in human history, local ecosystems have collapsed. Some eventually rebounded, and some, like Chaco Canyon, never have. Still, humans have continued to thrive elsewhere, but this time, the climate change is global. If we should lose this battle, we will see global environmental devastation. All is not doom and gloom, though history provides us with more than ample examples of societies that have refused to address their environmental crises and have suffered the consequences. There are also examples of societies like Iceland that have rallied, even late in the game, to protect their local environments. A quick personal anecdote. When I was a college student in the late 70s, I spent a semester studying abroad in Japan. Some friends and I took a week and traveled through South Korea. We sailed to Pusan on the southern tip of Korea, and during the next week we took trains up the peninsula to Seoul in the north and then back down. Back then, Korea was a stark, barren country. It was in the early stages of industrializing and far from the wealthy country it is today. It had gone through the brutal annexation by Japan in 1910, through the Second World War, and then through the Korean War. The country had clearly exhausted its resources by that time. When I arrived in Korea as a college student, we saw no forests. We saw very few trees, just miles and miles of empty, barren hillsides. The Koreans had deforested most of their country just to survive the brutality of their 20th century and keep themselves warm during cold Korean winters. Recently, I had the opportunity to return to Korea with some Korean friends of mine and take roughly the same route on a tour of Korea. The whole country was filled with lush green forests. I was amazed. Some of my friends had been children in Korea before emigrating to the U.S. They told me of their arbor days, when all Korean school children would go out to the hillsides and plant trees. Korea was far from a rich nation in those days, but it invested its precious resources into its environment and is now a beautiful, lush nation with thriving ecosystems. 
Societies can and do rebuild ecosystems after environmental catastrophes. We can change the course of climate change, but if we're going to rally, it's crucial that we do so quickly. The example of the latter Roman Empire shows us what happens when environmental degradation has gone too far. Whole ecosystems collapse and people from one area began immigrating to other areas. Resentments arise against the new immigrants. Disagreements arise over resources and a hundred other issues. Poor decisions get made and what might have been handled through diplomacy turns to war. Huge areas of the Earth's environment are already beginning to degrade due to climate change. What will be our likely response to increasing the ravages of climate change? Will we shoot ourselves in the foot like Rome? Will we continue to abuse our environment until it's too late to make meaningful change like the Easter Islanders, dooming all future generations to life's austerity and poverty? Or will we address the severe damage that has been done and allow future generations a chance at health and prosperity? We've only told about half our stories so far, so we'll have to wait until closer to the conclusion to further examine some of the answers to these questions. You guessed it. Our read this week is Jared Diamond's Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. It's like he wrote a book to accompany this podcast. Except, that is, for the fact that he wrote it over a decade before I began work on this project. Enjoy. See you next week.